it's time to come together. This conversation is at the next step. Culture is set by leadership and who you choose to put into positions of leadership. It's not as though the cancer is out of the body. It's not. Leadership of an organization at the very top is really important. They are the culture carriers. The collective women's voices have had the courage to rise up and say, enough. Something about shining a spotlight on a problem that helps break the taboo. It helps lift the stigma. We have to collaborate. It takes everybody. Accountability is something that we cannot afford to lose. We cannot let that go. We need to redefine respect. It isn't enough to simply talk about equality. One must believe in it. The day I start fighting for equality and for people that look like you and me will be the day I'm in my grave. I'm Diana Pierce Burgess, and this is Press Forward, a podcast where we have conversations about workplace equality and solutions in our post-MeToo world. I'm a former journalist who, along with 12 courageous women, created Press Forward to change culture in American newsrooms and beyond. We look at new approaches and outside-the-box ideas, or reflect on past mistakes to find lessons learned so that everyone can do their best work, because this is not just a gender issue, it's one of human decency. Before I introduce my guest today, who I am super excited about speaking to, I want to read a brief blurb from Project Censored about her incredible organization, and here it is. No one from the Coalition of Immokalee Workers appears on Billboard's Hot 100 or stars in an eagerly anticipated Hollywood blockbuster, but each of its members has been fighting against sexual harassment in the workplace and winning for over a decade. 80% of female farm workers report having experienced some form of sexual violence on the job. In 2005, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, or CIW, decided to combat this crisis with its fair food program in Florida's tomato growing industry. The FFP put financial pressure on tomato growers to implement a code of conduct that covered, among other things, a zero-tolerance policy for sexual misconduct. If a grower could not or would not completely and fully endorse this code of conduct, the CIW had an agreement with the biggest buyers of tomatoes in Florida's $600 million tomato industry, including Walmart, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, among others, to halt all purchases of that grower's tomatoes. The financial ramifications of a grower ignoring misconduct balanced the power considerably in the workers' favor. And joining us today is Marley Monticello. She's a staff member with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, CIW. She has a decade of experience working in the fair food movement. In addition to assisting with Know Your Rights trainings within the CIW's fair food program, something we'll hear about in a minute, Ms. Monticello has also served as a liaison and interpreter between workers, employers, and law enforcement, assisting with investigations of forced labor and sexual violence cases occurring on farms outside of the Fair Food Program. Marley, as you know with Press Forward and our podcast, we look at many approaches changing culture towards a more fair, equal, and safe work environment. That means looking at micro-approaches with organizations who help individuals change, who assist on an individual level, but it also means looking at macro-solutions and approaches, something that Press Forward's done with our training and our industry study, but something that CIW has done to an enormous industry that spans the country 
it's really impressive the way CIW has been able to affect change. And it's just a massive wow for me how clever and strategic your organization has been. Just wanted to start with you telling us about the coalition and how and why it formed. Absolutely. And first, I want to thank you for having us on the program. We, of course, uh, appreciate that opportunity and are excited to share uh, the progress that we've made in no small part because that progress can be replicated. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but just first want to say thank you. So to give a little bit of quick background, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers itself, the creator of the Fair Food Program, is an award-winning and internationally recognized human rights organization. We were formed over 20 five years ago in Immokalee, Florida, which is the heart of the Florida tomato industry. The coalition was created both by and for farm workers. And so it was formed principally in order to uproot centuries of human rights abuses in our industry, in U.S. agriculture, which of course include issues of sexual harassment, assault, and rape of farm worker women in particular. I mean, I think we should start by, I, I think, acknowledging it for our listeners who might not know this. I, I imagine, and, and you, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine a lot of the workers are um, low, low wage workers. Perhaps you have a, a probably a higher number of immigrants within the, your community. Um, these are people that probably don't have um, perhaps, uh, you know, English as, a, as their first language. Um, so, so just describe to me some of the problems, I suppose, that you saw the workers facing when, when CIW began. Yeah, absolutely. So farm labor has long been one of the most dangerous, least protected, and least paid jobs in the United States since the earliest days of large-scale agriculture. And even today in America's fields, farm workers, especially farm worker women, are vulnerable to abuse for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. In addition to physical violence, there is rampant wage theft, discrimination, and dangerous working conditions. And farm worker women in particular do experience an extremely high rate of sexual harassment. You uh, referenced in the summary of the uh, article that you mentioned the 80% figure. So that was from a study by the Southern Poverty Law Center that reported that astounding number of women who said on a regular basis they experience sexual harassment in the fields while they're harvesting the food that all of us purchase and put on the table for our families every day. There are very few legal protections for both farm workers and domestic workers. So the National Labor Relations Act actually excluded those two industries. And so there are even fewer labor protections on the books for those industries, period. That was because those jobs were largely occupied by uh, by working women of color, mostly black women and men, uh, af after the Civil War. And as a result of the widespread discrimination that, of course, still continues today, uh, that was the reason that those industries were excluded from basic labor protections at the federal level. And the, the ramifications of that continue to affect the workers who are in those jobs today, which, as you mentioned, it is a majority immigrant workforce. I would say it is not exclusively that. It is a mix of uh, people with documentation, without documentation, U.S. citizens. Uh, it's actually quite a variety of people, but the common denominator is the industry in which they work, and everyone receives the same very few protections. And even the, the laws that are on the books are unfortunately largely unenforced and very difficult to access. In particular, if you are low income, if you are a person of color, if you are an immigrant, it's very difficult to access that legal support. And in particular, because this is a rural industry. So going, getting anywhere, accessing any kind of services is even just geographically more difficult than it would be, say, in an urban area. 
So tell me how you did it. I mean, specifically the, the, the grassroots efforts and the, the business incentives. I mean, how did you create this model and ex exactly how did you get the support that you have now to, to walk us through this? Sure. So the what the CIW created is, as you mentioned earlier, the Fair Food Program. And simply put, it is a market-based, worker-driven human rights program that is able to ensure dignity and respect for women and men in the fields. Uh, it is a partnership among farm workers, growers, and major companies at the top of that supply chain. You mentioned some of the stars, so Walmart, Whole Foods, uh, major fast food companies. And the way that that came about was, is a certainly a long story, uh, but the, you know, farm workers back in the early 2000s really started recognizing that, again, looking at this landscape of very few legal protections, wanted to, you know, but experiencing an incredible amount of abuse in the fields, having very little luck in, addre in addressing those abuses with their employers alone, they recognized that they needed to be a rebalance of power. And they located that imbalance in the market. So in addition to that existing in terms of the legal system, there was a ton of market pressure on their employers that drives down wages, that drives up production, uh, and therefore has a huge impact on conditions as well in treatment of workers. And so what farm workers hypothesize is if we could harness that power, if we could get uh, that market pressure to go in the other direction, to incentivize good treatment to ensure that if something like sexual assault or a case of modern day slavery happens on a farm, that that results in a cut, you know, in a complete suspension of purchases in the same way that it does, for example, if E. coli breaks out, you know, why can't we hold human rights to the same standard that we hold something like food safety? And so in order to win that power, in order to enforce those rights, farm workers began reaching out beyond the farm gate. So going, you know, if you kind of map out the supply chain in your mind, you have farm workers at the bottom, you have their employers who are large-scale growers, you have the buyers such as uh, those supermarkets and restaurants that purchase that, and then the people who have power over them are the everyday consumers, all of us. And so farm workers began building partnerships with students, with communities of faith, with community leaders all across the United States to coordinate national campaigns to call on a particular buyer to sign an agreement with the CIW and say, I will only buy from farms that make sure that women are not raped, that there are no cases of forced labor, and that working conditions are safe. And so over the course of many years, the CIW was able to win many of those such agreements called fair food agreements. And in 2010, there was enough of those agreements and therefore enough um, concerted market pressure that employers said, you know what, it is worth my while to make these investments, these very necessary changes in order to affect change. And so that was the birth of the Fair Food Program itself, which again, today is a partnership among all of those players. It's a partnership among farm workers, their employers, the growers, and then the major buyers in order to ensure that in that supply chain on Fair Food Program farms, those kinds of longstanding abuses no longer exist. So I've got a lot of questions. So first of all, how long did it take for you to get the the Walmarts and the Trader Joe's and those people to sign on to this? I mean, was there, was this a an easy sell for them or was this a, 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 over time? The short answer is that it certainly took a lot of time, certainly by today's standards in the 21st century, where I think there is an expectation 
uh, that change can come very quickly. And that is not always the case. Sometimes it takes a really long time, in particular if you're starting, as farm workers do, as one of the most invisible communities in the country. Uh, and so building a platform and building enough relationships and having enough everyday people come together and amplify that call for change that farm workers were making and and using their own power as a consumer took a lot of time. So for example, the very first campaign was with Taco Bell back in 2001. That ended up being a four-year national boycott. And after that, uh, Taco Bell did sign on. But that also was kind of a domino effect because you started with Taco Bell, but then within three years, McDonald's had signed on. And then two years after that, Burger King had signed on. And you could see that especially within those micro industries, so not just food retailers, period, but within the, the fast food industry or within the uh, supermarket industry, that when you have some that are willing to be pioneers and leaders, that others that are their competitors will usually follow suit. Certainly not all, always, but that can definitely, so there was a, there was a quite a variety in the length of those campaigns, but it took almost a decade to get enough of those agreements to really move the whole industry. And when I say the Florida tomato industry, which is where the fair food program started, we're talking about 30,000 farm workers that work in that industry. So it's a very large scale. Um, a lot of folks that are out there harvesting our food every day. <laughs> uh, and so and that's a huge industry. So it really took some big players and a concerted effort by those big players to make it clear that, you know, today in the 21st century, those buyers are not just looking for the shiniest tomato or the roundest tomato or the best content or the best product, but they're also looking for something that's been produced ethically. And in order for them to send that message, they had to hear that themselves from consumers. Okay, so explain this to me. I, I just want to hear hear what ha So if there's a farm, there's a, there's a tomato farm, and on that farm there is a case of sexual assault. So or discrimination. So what happens? What? How do you move through this system? So I want to back up for a minute and explain what some of the mechanisms are in place, and then I'm happy to give kind of an example of how they work. So the Fair Food Program is predicated, as you mentioned, on a code of conduct, which farm workers themselves help to formulate. And that includes provisions like zero tolerance for forced labor and sexual assault, as well as a a ton of other uh, other types of protections that farm workers chose to prioritize. Workers are then, as part of the program, every season, workers are educated on what their rights are. Because as we know, in any industry, even if you implement a new policy, if people don't have the information about what their rights are and how to access them, that policy is just going to stay in a drawer somewhere. So education is critically important. Workers receive written materials. They watch a video at the point of hire. And then they're also educated in person by other farm workers. So the CIW staff, which is largely comprised of farm workers, travel out to farms all across the East Coast in order to educate workers for an hour of paid time before they go into the fields at least once a season. They also have supervisors and managers present. And through that rigorous education, farm workers themselves become the frontline monitors of their own rights, which is a really important principle of this program. So workers have the power and the tools themselves to monitor what's happening in the fields because they have the most access. They know what's happening on and every day in between the rows. And they can then use a variety of tools to report abuse when it does happen, including a 24-hour trilingual complaint line uh, in which they get to speak 
um, with a real person who picks up the phone any hour of the day. Uh, they can also speak up during regular in-depth audits that take place on the farm once a season, or they can simply walk into the CIW's office if they want to sit down with someone and talk through an issue. The complaint line audits and all of the subsequent uh, subsequent complaint resolution process is conducted by a third party body, which is called the Fair Food Standards Council. And so this organization operates independently of the employers. So it's not a part of HR. It is, a, it is truly an independent body that can investigate and come up with a solution and a resolution and the appropriate consequences for bad behavior. Uh, and they're empowered to hand down those consequences and the employers have to then implement them. Most importantly, that whole process of education and the complaint line and most importantly, the consequences is all backed by those agreements that the CIW has with those buyers. So in addition to the worker-driven approach that is at every single step of the way, those market consequences are really the secret sauce of the Bear Food Program. So those big buyers, they have a very simple but very crucial role. And again, that was mentioned in the article that you read from, they have to cut purchases from a farm that fails to implement that code of conduct and fails to be responsive to those investigations and the results of those investigations. When you have this this line set up and you have this um, these processes in place, where do you get the funding from? Do the buyers or do the farms all put a certain amount of funding into this or do you need to seek private funding? So at the beginning of the Fair Food Program, everything is, has been funded privately, and I think that largely from foundations and other philanthropic sources, grassroots donors, and that was important, especially at the beginning of the program, to establish its integrity. You know, there needs to be an, a level of independence from the industry itself in order for there to, in order for that third-party body in particular to operate independently. And so uh, today, there are some uh, modest support payments that major buyers would do, but it is, I think, less than... 15% of the full budget of that third-party body. Right. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I know you were still in the middle of all the processes. So if, if a worker has a complaint, tell us what happens next. So in that context of all of those mechanisms, let's say a farm worker woman comes, this happened all the time and unfortunately continues to happen outside of the fair food program. So you'll come into work, maybe you're new and your supervisor says, Hey, you know, I'm going to, um, I'm going to take you over to this other, to this other part of the field where I need you to do this special job for me. And you say like, okay, well, it's my boss. He's telling me to do this. He said, you know, get in my truck. We'll go over there. And so a woman will get in the truck and then she'll be taken maybe to the edge of the field and often uh, when, which is usually outside of the line of sight of anyone else. Uh, and often that is a way in which women are sexually harassed or assaulted on the job. Some women are able to, you know, physically escape or leave from those situations. Other women are not. And again, it is a, there are so many different vulnerabilities. So let's say something like that happens. There's an attempted sexual assault uh, and the woman is then able, she's received her education. She knows that that's not right. She knows that's against the rules. She calls a 24-hour complaint line. She's able to speak to someone in whatever language she's most comfortable speaking in and is able to report the details of that. That the Fair Food Standards Council takes that in, does a very fast investigation, especially compared with a legal process. So these investigations typically, in, from the point at which they are 
reported to the point in which they are resolved, 80% of them are resolved in less than a month. And over 50% are resolved in less than two weeks. And I just want to sit on those numbers for a minute because anybody who's ever experienced, you know, what happened, what would happen if that woman called the police about that issue? Not that she shouldn't, right? I'm not saying that this is a replacement at all for the legal system. On the contrary, that man should be criminally prosecuted. But we all know the limitations that that realistically exist in that system. At the very least, with the Fair Food Program, she can make a call, have it be investigated, and have there be consequences and be able to be removed from the presence of that person immediately. Because the Fair Food Standards Council will communicate with the employer within 48 hours of a complaint being received. These complaints are also totally confidential. So they're under no obligation to share the name or information about who that uh, complainant is with the employer. But they are able to say, you know, after they've conducted an investigation and um, and and uh, come up with the with their conclusion. They're able to say, "Look, this was reported. We we believe it has happened because of X, Y, and Z facts, and because this is a zero tolerance offense, you have to fire that supervisor today." Now, the employer at that point has two options. Let's say this is their favorite crew leader. This is their employee of many decades. They can't believe he would do something like this. You know, surely there's a misunderstanding. They can try to push back on that, but because they have said, I want to, you know, I'm trying to abide by the code of conduct, they either have to do what the Fair Standards Council prescribes in terms of a consequence for that supervisor, or they lose the business of 14 of the world's largest buyers, which is a massive hammer and really important and frankly, not one that we have to use all that often, precisely because it is so powerful. And so as a result of that, uh, that new set of incentives, that real change in the power balance, we've been able to eradicate, to virtually eradicate things like forced labor, things like sexual assault, um, you know, and vastly reduce sexual harassment and discrimination and wage theft. We've been able to address major health and safety issues because at the end of the day, the system that that sets up says that you, in order, if you want to be in business, you have to be ethical. If you want to be able to sell your product, you have to make sure that women are being respected at your workplace. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. And it has very, very strict and clear rules that you have to operate by, which, you know, and it's voluntary, right? You can choose to not do that and lose all that business, but most most companies won't. Uh, and again, that's that's what this program has really been able to implement. And how many farms do you have that have signed up? How, what's your, what are the numbers? So the, um, it's 90% of the Florida tomato industry. So, uh, and then also farms up and down the East Coast. It covers about 35,000 workers. The farms themselves do fluctuate, but we're talking about very large scale farmers. So we're talking, you know, it's around two dozen. It changes all the time, but these are huge employers that employ sometimes thousands of people individually. So the number of farms, I think, um, is is certainly a relevant factor, but the number of workers, I think, is the more relevant one. And we're talking about tens of thousands of people in seven states up and down the East Coast. And have you ever had any pushback or, um, uh, you know, internal criticism or, or a, you know, legal fight from, from anybody up to this point? Um, not, not significantly. There have been, there is an appeals process uh, that growers have access to, that employers, if they feel that something has been 
um, mishandled. They certainly can appeal that. That has been accessed a few times, uh, but there have not been any major legal issues that uh, that have really impeded the program. And I think that's because of a few reasons. One, uh, because this is a program that in a, in a set of standards that these farms have voluntarily agreed to follow. Uh, the Fair Food Standards Council is incredibly good at its job and uh, documents their investigations uh, at, at a very, very um, high definition of detail. Uh, and so when it comes down to it, those farms, and, and, and I think have, have won the respect of a lot of those employers as well over the last eight years that the program has been in place because they have operated so fairly, right? Because it's not like every single complaint that comes in is valid. And because they're willing to, to call those, uh, those shots when necessary, employers do actually trust them to navigate the system and to come to them when there's a real issue. And at the end of the day, for the employer, if you have that kind of supervisor on your farm, it's like a ticking time bomb. You know, that puts those farms at risk for major lawsuits. And so this program actually is really good for business. And I think a lot of companies have recognized that, that this is actually both for the buyers at the top of the supply chain who are held accountable for conditions in their supply chain these days and employers themselves. This is a way to to really identify those bad apples, get them out of the mix, improve the systems within the farms themselves to prevent and create much more transparency and flow of information in a way that improves the company overall. And it seems as if you've really analyzed and studied the the problems from the past, i.e., you know, people of different um, languages. And so having a, 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 a uh, call line that you can talk to in any, you know, up to three or four different languages. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways that this, that systems break down where it looks like you've addressed that and you've thought about it so carefully. I mean, one thing that you mentioned is, you know, this, I mean, it is a bit of your own system of justice and I don't want to say it like that because I know it's not, but I mean, there is a way of dealing with this very quickly and swiftly. And, um, you know, I wonder, you know, do local police um, or, or law enforcement, do they ap applaud you guys for this or do they feel like you're doing their job? Or, I mean, how does that, how is that relationship worked itself out? The Fair Food Program is a complementary system to the legal system and to law enforcement. So we collaborate very closely with law enforcement in the event that there is criminal behavior. A lot of what is covered by the Fair Food Code of Conduct doesn't necessarily fall under a violation of the law but it is a violation of workers' rights. <laughs> the law is far from perfect. Uh, but for example, I, uh, you know, one really good example of how that works in practice. So there was one example of a forced labor case that happened on a fair program farm uh, over the eight years that it's been in, in place. And it was because, precisely because, one of the farms ignored the list of crew leaders that had been banned from fair food program farms because of repeated abuse. And so because they ignored that list and nevertheless hired uh, one of these bad actors who then ended up um, having a small crew of workers who he was, um, he was taking their pay and being physically abusive, that... Uh, and then those workers received at Fair Food Program Education. They called the complaint line. We were able to investigate that that case and pull those workers out of that situation. And that case went from, I think it was on the prosecutor's desk 
basically with a bow on it, with tons of information and interviews. We'd, we'd contacted uh, law enforcement right away. We worked with the FBI and other agencies uh, within several weeks, um, which again, in a case like that is, is virtually unheard of. Uh, and that employer, of course, ended up going to prison. And there was collaboration at every step of the way in supporting the survivors in that case, along with law enforcement and victim services, assisting with the investigation, um, coming to the uh, the court dates as well. And so we have a long history of collaborating with law enforcement long before the Fair Food Program, actually. You mentioned another um, a part of my job is doing that liaison work with law enforcement. Um, there are still many farms outside of the Fair Food Program. And unfortunately, there are still abuses happening on those farms. And we, as, this, as the coalition, still continue to receive those calls. And so we continue to um, work together with law enforcement outside of the Fair Food Program to investigate and help to bring to prosecution those cases. So the CIW has been doing that for decades um, and helped uncover over nine cases of modern-day slavery in the agricultural industry prior to the Fair Food Program, many of which were federally prosecuted by the Department of Justice and investigated by major federal agencies like the FBI and Homeland Security. So we have a long history of uh, of working together with law enforcement when needed uh, and certainly continue to do that in the fair food program. So I think, uh, you know, the Department of Labor has said this is an excellent program and they see it as very complementary to their enforcement efforts and something that is ultimately preventative because what the fair food program does is, again, change the incentives such that we are actually able to prevent these abuses before they happen. And so that that takes a lot off of law enforcement's plate, uh, as well as obviously improving the lives of the tens of thousands of workers who are in the program. It's so inspirational for me to hear about this program. And I've, I've known about it for, for quite some time. And you and I have spoken in the past. So I just find it just incredibly um exciting for us to be able to see this and as you say it takes a long time it is not something that happens overnight it's you know many many years but i mean press forward time's up many other organizations that have sprung up since 2017 have a lot to learn from your organization yeah. and um you know the it, these incentives that you have uh created these this model that you've you've created uh, you know how do you translate that across to other industries and i know that you have been working with others. So, so, so talk to us a little bit about that. So the exciting thing, one of the exciting things about the Fair Food Program is not only the impact that it's having, but also its replicability. So those elements that we mentioned of education, market consequences, you know, uh, good auditing mechanisms, a, a, a complaint line, all of those tools can be replicated in other industries. And we've been exploring those possibilities since 2014. We've worked with a wide range of organizations and other types of industries, some that are that are quite similar to the uh, to the agricultural industry where we work, such as Vermont dairy workers who have created the Milk with Dignity program. They have their first major agreement with Ben and Jerry's, so you can feel great about eating Ben and Jerry's, uh, to ensure that in that in that supply chain that dairy workers are also treated with respect. Another good example is the Model Alliance, which is a group of fashion models that, that spans New York and L.A. and London uh, who have been working on the Respect program, which emerged from uh, many months of, uh, of mentorship and collaboration between the CIW and the Model Alliance in order to formulate what would this model look like, but in the fashion industry. 
also in order to address things like sexual assault and sexual violence, as well as health and safety issues that models are often facing, and in particular in the context of the of the power dynamics and the hierarchies that exist in that industry. We're also operational uh, internationally through a uh, network that we helped to found called the Worker Driven Social Responsibility Network. We recently supported a group of garment workers in the country of Lesotho uh, in their process of seeking an agreement with major um, garment producers like Children's Place and others, Levi Strauss, in order to protect the rights of 10,000 garment workers in Lesotho, but also using a lot of these same mechanisms, which is based not only on the Fair Food Program, but other uh, international programs that have been in garment for many years, like the Bangladesh Accords. Uh, and so it's, it's through that kind of collaboration and adaptation that we're able to see elements of this program exist in other situations as well, in other circumstances. And those are just a few examples, because this model is immensely powerful, but also immensely adaptable and flexible to many different circumstances in which the market is playing a big role in determining whether or not a product goes out or not. And then the workers who are producing that product, whether it is a piece of clothing or a movie or a tomato, uh, is is facing uh, undue abuse and, and, and really dangerous conditions. Those can be addressed through this model. So, uh, yeah, so taking what you've just said, how, how would you, because we have talked about this amongst ourselves at Press Forward, um, you know, how would you, and we've, we've looked at different ideas on this, but how would you um, do this with um, journalism or with reporting and, and with um, news organizations? I mean, one thing that we looked at was advertising, you know, and to make that the business incentive. But, but what, what would be your initial thought on that? <laughs> I, I appreciate you trying to slip that in there. I think that I have to, I do have to beg off because of the principle of how this works. And that would, in order to answer that question, we would need to look at these tools in conjunction with experts on that industry, with the workers who are in that industry, with the journalists, with the people who are operating in that industry to map it out and look at it. Because again, the reason that this was so powerful in the first place is because it was so deeply informed by the people who are already in that environment and in that context. And so in the in those other um, examples that I gave, like the RESPECT program, were the product of months of collaboration between our organization um, and, an, and an organization representing uh, the employees in that industry. And so I would love to continue that conversation with you. Uh, but it definitely is a it is a long-term one and kind of goes back to the importance of, of that theme that we, uh, this kind of change is very worth it, but it takes time and effort and energy and, and, and a level of investment in terms of um, the in leadership from the people within that industry. I think it's uh, it is a often a complex model, but one that really works. And so I think it's worth exploring, but it's it has to be really led by and designed by the experts in that industry with support from organizations like ours who have already, you know, tried out these mechanisms, know how they work and could help map that onto a new industry, whether it's, um, you know, the entertainment industry or the journalism industry or many others as well. So hate to beg off your question, but <laughs> no, no, I think I think we have our answer. Press Forward and CIW need to convene um, a a group or a, a committee or a coalition of news industry leaders and start this process, as you said, and, and let's 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 keep talking. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. And Marley, just one more question before we go. How can people find out more about the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, CIW? Tell us, tell us where to find more information about you guys. Um, so anybody who's looking for more information can visit www.ciw-online.org. And if you want to learn more about the Fair Food Program, very easy to remember. It's just fairfoodprogram.org. Marley, this was such an honor for me to, to have the opportunity to talk to you about this. And I hope our listeners have gained some invaluable, I know they've gained some invaluable um, lessons and knowledge about um, how change can truly be successful and make a difference. And uh, as I say, it's just um, a, a wonderful opportunity to share your program success. But I mean, obviously, it's been a long time coming and you've had a lot of, of work and um, but you've created something that really stands as a model for others to um, to learn and, and listen and 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 uh, hopefully take on within their own in- industry. So so I really appreciate you having the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. Of course, it's my pleasure. And if, and I honestly can, even after being with the organization for many years, uh, feel the same way going to work every day. I have immense respect for the farm worker community that created this program and really built on their experience. And we're so intrepid and we're doing this for many years before I was with the organization. So I, I go in feeling that same level of inspiration. I'm happy to share that with you all. Um, you know, it's really an incredible thing that this community has done. And we're just thrilled for the opportunity to work on those collaborations and to share that success with the many, many millions of people who need it in many other industries. Terrific. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Diana Pierce Burgess, the Executive Director of Press Forward. Visit us online at www.thepressforward.org. Join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Press Forward Now on Facebook and at The Press Forward on Twitter and Instagram. Be sure to catch our podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. We'll see you next week.